0: In this month's edition of Sunday Comics, we're going to talk about a different genre than we have tackled previously. We started off at the Dragon Hoops, which was a slice of life slash sports story. We delved into the superhero realm with Moon Knight. In this month, we're tackling Richard Stark's Parker, The Score, which has been adapted and illustrated by writer-illustrator Darwin Cook. It's understandable if you're both unfamiliar with the character of Parker as well as Richard Stark. Stark is a pseudonym for Donald E. Westlake, who was a hard-boiled crime writer around the time of the 1960s all the way through very close to the present, actually. He won a ton of awards for his various works, and in 1993 he won the Mr. Writers of America Grand Master Award. That's the Mystery Writers of America, not Mr. Writers of America. In fact, of the 28 novels that Donald E. Westlake wrote under the pseudonym Richard Stark, Parker is the subject of 24 of them, so it's his main character, and Parker is a bit of a bastard. Reading these various books either by Stark or the few adaptions that Darwin Cook did of his work, you're not going to find yourself liking Parker not just in terms of the context where these are set in the 1960s it's not just that his values are outdated compared to our own he was subversive and crude and terrible even for that time so it's really challenging your own perceptions can you embrace a protagonist who you know is generally a giant piece of trash darwin cook on the other hand uh, was a graphic designer and animator who had received many many awards from eisner's to harvey to schuster awards which were all sort of comic industry awards, uh, recognizing the people at the very top. Unfortunately, he passed away um, in his prime in his 50s from cancer. He had uh, had a contract with publisher IDW to adapt four different Richard Stark novels over the course of eight years, and he finished all four of them over the course of four and had planned to do more. In fact, he also did a brief mini uh, in the middle called The Man with the Getaway Face, so, out of those 24 Richard Stark Parker novels, Darwin Cook adapted The Hunter, which was the very first one. In fact, we have seen this adapted in many forms, starring people from Jason Statham to uh, Mel Gibson. Uh, it's been made for film several different times, uh, followed by The Outfit, The Score, which is the one that we're reading today, and Slayground. He also did The Man with the Getaway Face, which is a brief story in between several of those stories to explain how Parker had cosmetic surgery to get away from the outfit, which is the face of organized crime in the various Parker stories. Now, as I'm talking, you may hear physical sounds because I don't usually buy a lot of physical medium these days. But the Parker novels are really special. And if you were to actually look at the art for one of them, especially if you see it in person, you'd understand why. Darwin Cook's art is definitely more towards the iconic versus the realistic end of the art spectrum. Things look like cartoons, but they're done in such an elegant way. And in fact, for each of the various books that Darwin took on for the Parker projects, he used three color palettes, black, white, and then an accent color. So for example, in the score, it's a black, white, and sort of golden yellow. And for the Hunter, it's black, white, and a grayish green. Uh, the outfit it's a lighter blue so each one has its own unique signature style and darwin is a great artistic match for the parker series for one reason because he naturally embraces the aesthetics of the 1960s so both from the fashion to the design aesthetics of buildings and art Uh, but beyond that because his style is a contrast for the brutality of parker as a character Parker is a brute. He's a big man. He is rough. He is violent. And his key trait is that he is a crook. Parker doesn't kill because he wants to. Parker kills because he feels sometimes it's the most expedient way to do the thing that he has to do. And in each of these various books, most of them are circling around a particular job. Or in the case of Slayground, where some of Parker's previous jobs have caught up with him and he has to escape with his life. The score, I find particularly to be my favorite example of the series because it's a heist book. And everyone loves a heist book. When you think of something like Ocean's Eleven, the whole getting the gang together, planning the job and executing it, and all the little things that can go right or wrong along the way. The score really embraces the fun of that, with Parker being pulled into a bigger job and having to work with other people. Typically, Parker would say that any job more than five people is way too many people. But in this case, he has been recruited by someone named Edgars, and Edgars has grand ambitions. The mining town of Copper Canyon, North Dakota is in a box canyon. There is one way in or out. The rest of it is surrounded by the surrounding walls of the canyon. So the entire town is enclosed there, which means all the residents live there. They have curfews at night and a very minimal police force. But all this is enforced by external security. As long as they sort of close off and enforce a curfew at night, the town's pretty safe. But within this town, they have several banks, they have jewelry stores, they have all the things that a fully operational town has. And Edgars has a plan. He envisions a force of about 24 to 25 guys coming in, and each of them taking on various jobs within the city, knocking over the various stores and shops, drilling the safes, taking out the banks, and robbing the jewelry stores. Parker immediately rejects this idea, because in Parker's experience, you have to have a small crew, and the idea of a large crew is unwieldy. If you think about Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park and the idea of chaos theory and sort of the increased complexity if you've ever been part of a project at work frankly and the idea was hey what if we just doubled your workforce on this could you get this done quicker that's often not the case because the more people there are the more difficult communications becomes the more difficult organization becomes people are tripping over each other And each additional person adds an additional degree of complexity and another point of failure. And that's what Parker is seeing when he hears Edgar's and sees this job, and he immediately wants to turn and walk away. Parker doesn't need this job. He works about once a year. He pulls a job big enough that he can take off to uh, Miami or Key West. And then once he hits about $3,000 in his bank account, he goes back and does another job. That's how he operates. He is not greedy however as edgars goes over his grand plan parker starts to get an idea in his head and it's more of the idea of the poetry of the job and being able to pull off something that can't be done the idea of robbing an entire town in one night and he thinks about the idea that you would need 24 men and as he discusses the various jobs that would need to be done someone to watch the gates to provide external security four men moving on this job, one stays, four men, three men moving on this next one, one stays, peeling off one at a time, roving security, he realizes they really only need about a dozen people on the ground total. And as he talks with the various men in attendance, like Grofeld, who he has worked with in the past, who has a flair for uh, the theatrical, he realizes that this job might just be able to work. And it's at that point, midway in the story, that Parker begins to assemble the different pieces of the puzzle, put the players in place, collect the equipment needed, the trucks, and we're all primed in Act 3 to actually move in on the robbery of Copper Canyon. And one of the things I appreciate in the various Parker books that Darwin Cook makes is he often creates little instructional manuals or has infographics or various sort of data-oriented type things to explain concepts or ideas. And one of the cases in this particular book that he uses is how Parker um, sort of takes control of the phone nervous center of the town. This is back when they had switchboards, so they actually have switchboard operators so it's the middle of the night and Parker and the other robbers roll in wearing their ski masks with their shotguns and they uh, walk into the phone center with these ladies and Parker who is typically a very cold calculating gruff person that doesn't uh, emote very well has a very different persona when dealing different people because he recognizes that within a job he needs to use his soft skills in various spots rather than always being a hammer So in this case, Grofeld is watching Parker as he works the room and describing first how he enters the room and terrifies everyone speechless to get everyone's attention. Next, you group them together to sort of make sure that no one is going rogue and going off on their own and trying to signal for help. Then you personalize the moment by asking for people's names and using their names when you address them and giving them a moment to grasp and absorb the situation. So it's a very sort of intentional act. It's not what you would expect from someone as brutal as Parker, but because Parker is a clever and master thief, he recognizes he needs to modulate his approach. So if you were to encounter Parker on the streets as Grofield sees him, he imagines Parker's stern face being gruff and saying, go to hell. But on the job, Parker in the ski mask, which obviously looks even more frightening, says, I'm sorry, ladies. He personalizes this moment and softens the approach and explains how things are going to work and creates a level of comfort, even as they're planning on robbing these people and tying them up, saying, I'm sorry for the inconvenience. This is only going to be a moment. Here's what we're going to do. One of you is going to stay on the radio. No one's going to hurt you. And moving on with the job. And in fact, the job is going exceedingly well as the entire crew rolls into Copper Canyon. The police are taken out almost immediately. There are small wrinkles, like a high school boy who has stayed over at his girlfriend's house is trying to sneak home in the middle of the night and see some guys in the bank. But upon calling the police station, because Parker's crew has already taken over, they're easily able to pick him up, tie him up, and leave him overnight. This is meant to be a bloodless coup. Parker and crew just want the money. They have a place about 15 miles down the road in an old canyon where they're all going to take a truck out there with all their loot, hide out for about five days until everything blows over, split the cash, and get out of town. But what they did not all count on was the spoiler, the fly in the ointment, so to speak, which is Edgars himself. So while guarding the police station, some of the officers there seem to recognize Edgars' voice. And as the job is nearing completion, Edgars peels off his scheme mask, revealing himself to them, and summarily executes the police officers. Because Edgars himself was the former police chief of this town, And this was not the impassionate money grab that he sold this as. This is an act of revenge. This is an act of vengeance. So from his perspective, he is getting what he deserves out of this. And at this point, he has now screwed everyone over by breaking protocol, shooting cops, and things are getting out of hand rapidly. It's compounded by the fact that Grofeld, who is meant to be watching the ladies at the phone center, has become affectionate with one of the young ladies there. They've decided they're in love, and she is going to come with them back to the gang hideout which Parker, who is dispassionate, has done this dozens of times and knows that this young lady probably isn't ready to enter a life of hardened crime and the fact that she has seen all of their faces if she comes back with them means that she is now a massive liability, explains to Grofeld, if she comes with you and she decides she does not want this life, it is your job to take care of this problem. So the gang successfully escapes from the town with minimal bloodshed beyond Edgar's himself blowing up, you know, and setting fire to a significant portion of the town. So while the town is smoldering, the crew makes their escape and gets to their hideout. Uh, more members of the crew slowly melt down over time in their hideout in the aftermath of what was supposed to be an in-and-out simple plan job. Everyone has had those kinds of projects, Right. Where you had it scripted you knew exactly what you're going to do but that element of unexpected thing the person that's acting out and not doing their part the edgars in the process puts the kibosh and the whole thing and that's what i love about these parker stories like parker himself is despicable but the world surrounding parker is fascinating And it's really cool to just sort of get this hit of 1960s nostalgia. And uh, crime stories are fascinating because there doesn't have to be a good guy. You could read stories with all bad guys, and they're each uniquely bad in their own way. If comics are not your thing—I'm surprised you're listening to this episode—but if comics are not your thing and any of this sounds fascinating— Richard Stark's Parker novels are widely available on Audible as part of the free lending library selection. So if you're already an Audible member, don't be shy about checking some of them out. They're about five hours each. Uh, They're nice little snacks. I probably wouldn't start with The Score, which is the original novel. It's a lot more hard-boiled than some of the rest and involves Parker getting revenge on his wife, among others, who have left him for dead after betraying him on a job. I think The Score is a great example. So I might just jump to something like that, because as like with James Bond things, many of these things are serialized to a degree. So you can kind of just take it as it is. But if you're a completionist, the score is where you'd want to start. And uh, honestly, the Mel Gibson movie from 1999 is not bad, although there's a Lee Marvin movie, which I've heard has won awards. So... If you're uh, interested in digging in more to Richard Stark's uh, book history, I highly recommend it. uh, Crime stuff is fun, and uh, it's a different uh, type of fiction than we get nowadays. So at this point on Sunday Comics, we have talked about two indie books and a Marvel book, so I think it's time we make it over to the Distinguished Competition of DC, and for the month of October, we will cover Batman the Long Halloween This book is a murder mystery that takes place over the course of an entire year, with every major holiday marking the murder of a character in the story. And in fact, this book in particular has been a heavy piece of source material for some of the most iconic Batman films that you've seen. So if you've enjoyed either Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight, or more recently Matt Reeves' The Batman, much of the background in the organized crime and police force that you've seen in Gotham City as well as some of the more iconic visual scenes, like the large pile of money being burned in a warehouse, all of those come straight from this story. Uh, It's a different art style than you'd expect for a Batman book. It's a lot more painterly. It's more abstract. It's by an artist named, named Tim Sale, who also recently passed away from cancer, unfortunately. Um, but it is one of the best Batman stories that I could recommend for someone that's interested in the character, but not interested in sort of following things month to month. It's self-contained and it takes place one year into the history of Batman being a crime fighter on the job. So thanks for joining me for this month and I will see you next month for Batman the Long Halloween. Hey, thanks for sticking around to the end. I really appreciate you listening to the Data Plus Love podcast. If you'd like to see more about what we're up to with the show, go to anchor.fm slash data plus love. Just spell it out. Not a literal plus sign. Here you'll be able to see our library of episodes as well as interact with them either through polls or comments or leave a voicemail message that I'll put on an episode. You can interact with me personally by joining me on Twitter. I'm at Zach Bowders. Not hard to hunt down. And if you like what you're hearing, consider leaving a tip for us or signing up for a small monthly donation at our ko-fi.com slash data plus love. Buying a cup of coffee for the show is just $3. And get more if you choose, or sign up to give that $3 or more monthly. Either way, I really appreciate it. Lastly, if you'd like to see more of my public data viz work, check me out on Tableau Public. So go to public.tableau.com and search for Zach Bowders. I'm the only one. You won't have trouble finding me. I promise. So thanks again for hanging on to the end of the show. I really appreciate all of your listens. And until next time, this has been Zach Bowders for the Data Plus Love Network.